Revelation chapter 2, I want to begin by reading verses 1 through 5. Revelation chapter 2, beginning verse 1. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how that thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do ask that you would give us the understanding that we need of your word this hour. Teach us what we need to know and show us how we need to change. And Lord, we pray that we would not settle for a routine in place of a real relationship with you. May we seek to be right with you in every area of our lives, that you would be glorified the most. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you have seen or heard on the news or through social media about uh, what is being called the Asbury Revival up in Kentucky? All right, a number of you have, a number of you have. Um, it has certainly made its uh, way through social media and the news and different things, and, and it's got a lot of people asking some good questions. Just for... History's sake, in the background of what went on there, several weeks ago, this uh, university in uh, Asbury, Kentucky, I believe is the name of the town itself, uh, but uh, this uh, university was having, it's a Christian university, they were having a chapel service, and, and after the chapel service, some of the um, musicians stayed behind for a little bit, and, um, and after a couple of hours, uh, uh, they were still meeting, and they were still singing, and they were still um, having a service. And so the college president sent out an email to the student body that if you'd like to come back and join in, you're welcome to do that. And uh, long story short, it has resulted in a continuous um, service ever since then. They've literally been uh, night and day having services in this chapel. Um, some people are calling it a great revival. I hate to be a wet blanket or to rain on anybody's parade, and I'm not going to say, uh, speak of things I don't know of, but I will simply say that I have some grave concerns about what's happening there um, for a number of reasons. Um, first of all, um, what is being called a revival uh, started and has stayed a, a worship service that features the music and singing, and there is very little Bible preaching. Um, 
the reports that I have seen have uh, been very consistent on this particular point that the people who've gone and have experienced this, um, many of them said we didn't hear any messages. One said, well, we, we heard one or two 15 or 20 minute sermons. Uh, but an event like this that, that is going for, you know, days and days and hours and hours, hundreds of hours at this point, uh, to have so little Bible preaching involved in it is, a, is of grave concern to me. Uh, secondly, I have some grave concerns because of the, uh, some bad doctrine that I know is, is present and some things that are happening in the service that um, are just biblically inaccurate. And this has to do with the charismatic doctrine um, and um, things like that. Um, you can look at the history of the school itself. It's connected with a Wesleyan holiest move, holiness movement that is a very charismatic in their theology um, and the teaching on gifts and different things like that. And another big concern that I have is that um, when you look at the great revivals of the past, whether we're talking about the Great Awakenings, whether we're talking about the Prayer Revival of 1858, whether we're talking about the Welsh Revivals, the early 1900s, those revivals always featured God doing a work in a group of people who then went out and impacted a community. But when you look at this particular incident, what you have is you have people all over the country that are flying and driving hundreds of miles because they want to come here and experience this. It's, it's, a, it's, it's opposite of what we see of the great revivals in the past. I saw a headline just yesterday from a secular newspaper who I think brilliantly summarized what's going on there. Uh, they said, Asbury University is now the Christian Woodstock. I thought, wow. Uh, I don't know that they meant to hit that nail on the head, but they did. Um, there's just some things about it that I am very, very concerned about. Our people, because of this, thinking more about God, hopefully... And that's a good thing. Are some people hearing the gospel through this? Hopefully. And that's, that is a good thing. Will some people be saved as a result of what goes on there? I hope so. And, and that would be a good thing. But I also think it's a good thing that we obey the instructions of Scripture. First John tells us to try the spirits whether they are of God. And, and, and here is where a lot of the confusion comes in. People think that because there is a mass of people gathering for an extended period of time with a very um, obvious emotional response that therefore revival must be taking place. And I think our biggest problem is that we have confused an emotional response with what genuine revival is. And sadly, I've seen amongst my own peers and even some of my mentors uh, via social media over these last few weeks how they have characterized this meeting is alarming to me uh, because they're basically saying that because there are a lot of people coming and there's a lot of emotion happening that this is a genuine revival and we should not question it. And I, I, I could not disagree more. And with our own revival coming up, I thought it would be very important for us as a church to take a few minutes this morning and talk about what real revival is. What is biblical revival? In just a minute, we're going to look in detail at Revelation chapter 2 and verse number 5 because I think it is an excellent verse to help us understand what real revival is. 
But let me give you a simple definition to start with, and then we'll, we'll flesh this out as we go. What is real revival? Real revival is this. Real revival is when a believer, a Christian that is, responds to the conviction of the Holy Spirit with repentance and returning to a place of full obedience. That is biblical revival. It has nothing to do with the size of the crowd. It has nothing to do with the number of nights or services or hours that those services went. It has nothing to do with whether or not invitations were passed out ahead of time. It has nothing to do with how emotional people got in this meeting. All of those things... Some may accompany real revival, but you cannot, you cannot confuse them. They're not the same thing. Real revival, in its most simple definition, is when just one believer responds to the conviction of the Holy Spirit with repentance and a return to full obedience. Now, when we think of large-scale revival, that's usually what we think of as revival, like the Great Awakening. You had this particular pattern that was duplicated thousands of times over. But it all starts with an individual heart. And from there, as God moves and people respond and we see it spread further and further, we would, we would characterize it historically as a great revival taking place. But we have to make sure that we, we understand what real revival is or we'll, we'll get confused. And the biggest danger is that we could miss real revival because we're looking for the wrong thing. Now, some people say that revival in the New Testament is not a thing. It's not real. That that was something that only happened in the Old Testament. And you may or may not have heard that before, but just know this, that there are people who, who absolutely deny that revival can happen in the New Testament. And, and I've, I've heard it said, and I don't agree with this statement, but I heard someone said, or read it rather, they said, we're not looking for revival, we're looking for the return of Christ. I don't think that has to be mutually exclusive. I don't. I, I think we can experience revival while we're waiting for the return of Jesus. I think we can do both. But some people say, no, 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 this is, that's just Old Testament. Of course, in the Old Testament, we do have some wonderful examples of revival, uh, in the book of Nehemiah is a great example. Nehemiah chapter number 8, the people cried for the word of the Lord and it was brought out and they read the word of the Lord and as they were reading through the Bible, they realized, you know what, we're not doing half this stuff. There's a lot of things we're supposed to be doing that we're not doing and we need to start doing them. And so they started doing it. Another one happened in the days of Josiah, uh, one of the kings of Israel. Uh, they, uh, they, brought, they found the book of the Lord and they brought it out and they read the Bible and they realized we're not doing what the Bible says. Let's start doing it again. And you had a mass revival that broke out all over the country. People were turning back to the Lord and getting back to a place of true repentance. So you have wonderful examples of revival in the Old Testament. So some may ask, well, where's an example of revival in the New Testament? Well, that's where it gets a little trickier because, first of all, we have a much shorter history to draw from, all right? Old Testament covers hundreds and hundreds of years. New Testament, only a couple dozen, a few dozen years, all right? So you have a much shorter time period. But it was pointed out to me years ago that there was a portion of Scripture 
in the New Testament that was absolutely a revival passage, and it's Revelation chapter 2 and 3. In Revelation 2 and 3, you have seven letters that were written to seven literal churches. They were dictated by Jesus to John. He wrote it down, and these letters would have then been sent to these seven churches in these seven different cities. Jesus had a personal message for each of those churches. Five of those churches needed correction. They were doing something wrong, and Jesus was writing to point it out and tell, to tell them they needed to make it right. Two of those churches did not need correction. They needed encouragement from the Lord, and they, that's what they received, which, by the way, one of those was the church at Philadelphia. So Philadelphia Baptist Church uh, draws its name from that particular church, and, um, and, and that's kind of the connection there. But, but uh, these were seven literal churches that Jesus wrote to, And the first one was the church at Ephesus. And we read the letter here just a moment ago in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. We we read a part of it. And first of all, what we note in this is that the church at Ephesus was a good church by our definition. I mean, Jesus went through a list of good traits that this church had. He said, I know thy works and thy labor. You are a hard-working church and your patience and how you can't bear them that are evil. They were, they were very zealous in keeping their doctrine pure. You've tried those that say they're apostles and are not. You've found them to be liars. You, you have been very careful to maintain your doctrine and not be affected by false prophets. You have borne and have been patient. Twice the Lord commends them for their patience. And for my name's sake thou hast labored and hast not fainted. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a good church to be a part of right there. They were a good church, but they had a big problem. In verse number 4, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. You see, the sin of the book of, of the church at Ephesus was not a sin of commission. In other words, they weren't promoting false doctrine. Uh, They weren't, you know, actively involved in sinful things, at least as recorded here. Theirs was a sin of omission. They left something out. They were laboring. And they were doing it for the Lord, but they were doing it without love. That was their sin. And so in verse number 5, Jesus gives this church made up of individual believers the recipe for revival. I call it the three R's of revival. You know, used to say about elementary school and teaching that they would emphasize the three R's. Reading, writing, and arithmetic. Reading R, writing W, arithmetic A. Notice spelling's not on that list, right? Okay. I don't know why, because it, you know, phonetically, the three R's. My outline will start with the letter R for all three points, just so you know. Here is the pattern 
that Jesus told the church at Ephesus to follow to get back to the place they ought to be. Remember our definition of revival? It's when a believer responds to the conviction of the Holy Spirit with repentance and a return to full obedience. That's what Jesus is teaching here. Notice the three R's of revival. First of all, the first R is remember. Remember. Notice again verse 5. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen. So step number one is to remember. Now, to remember implies that you knew something previously, but you forgot it. Now, it's a classic joke. The older you get, the more you forget, right? They say that the two things that go when you get older are, number one, your mind, and number two, I can't remember, right? To remember means that you knew something, but you forgot it. Or in this context, it could also mean that you used to do something and you stopped doing it. In other words, there was something you knew or something you did in the past that you forgot or you stopped. You used to be in a different place and you're not there anymore. So you need to remember from whence thou hast fallen. Remember where you used to be. Now, how do we remember? You know, I'm the kind of person that I, I have to set reminders for myself in some way. I mean, I, I think I'm pretty good about remembering stuff, but Mrs. Milam disagrees. Right? She'll sometimes, she'll see me at the, uh, before service and she'll, she'll remind me of something. You know, can you say this? Don't forget to announce that. And I've gotten to the point where I don't say, yes, I'll do that. I say, yes, if I remember. <laughs> so I use reminders. I set reminders on my phone. I set reminders in my calendar. Um, I will, one of the things I do, the tricks I do to remember things is I will email myself. And I, I, maybe if I've been talking to you and you reminded me of something, I might have pulled out my phone and I've said, no, I'm not, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm emailing myself a reminder here, right? I'm not texting somebody or anything. I'm taking what you said and I'm emailing it to me so that when I get in the office, it's there in my inbox and I can remember this. We need reminders because, you know, even though we don't do it on purpose, we forget. And sometimes there's things that we used to do and, and at some point along the way, we, we broke the, uh, the habit and we got out of it and we just don't do it anymore. And so we need to be reminded. Well, how was Jesus reminding the church here? Notice this. This is very important in the context of revival. Go back to chapter 1 here and look at uh, verse number 18. I am, this is Jesus speaking, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and death. Now he's talking to John, notice what he says in verse 19. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Now look at chapter 2 and verse number 1. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write. How was the church at Ephesus reminded of where they had fallen from, through the Word of God. Through the literally written words 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is how they were reminded. It was through the Word of God. So, how do we remember when we have forgotten what we used to know, when we have stopped doing what we used to do? How do we remember that? How is it brought to our attention? What is the reminder? It's the Word of God. This is the primary tool that God uses to remind His people of what they ought to be doing. So why do we schedule a revival meeting? Why do we invite, oftentimes, a guest speaker to come in, a guest preacher to come in and preach to us a series of Bible messages? Why do we do that? Is it because we think that we can dictate to the Holy Spirit when He can revive us and when He can't? You know, nothing would be more inconvenient than revival breaking out on a normal Sunday, right? Yeah. No, why do we schedule it? It is because we recognize that we need reminders. I have, a, I have certain reminders that I have set up on my computer that they come up on a weekly basis. I have some that come up on a daily basis. And it's just something that I've scheduled because I know I need a reminder. And we invite an evangelist to come in and preach to us messages centered around the gospel, but also how that applies to daily living and being the kind of Christian that God wants us to be. Not because we think that we can generate revival or that we can tell the Holy Spirit when He must work, but because we recognize that we need to be reminded. And oftentimes, that is what a revival meeting is. It's just a series of reminders. If you've been saved for any length of time, the chances are probably not very high. You're going to hear something brand new that you've never heard before or read a verse of Scripture that you've never, ever seen before. It's going to be a whole lot of reminding going on. But that's important. We need that because we need to remember. Until we remember, we can't repent and we can't redo. We have to remember first and foremost. This also emphasizes the importance of the Word of God in revival. I mentioned two Old Testament revivals. And in both of them, they began with a return to the Word of God. Because that's where we find the reminders. We read in the Bible and we read what we should do, what we should not do. And if we're guilty of breaking those commands, the Holy Spirit says, you used to do this and now you don't. You didn't do this before and now you are. You're wrong. And we are reminded. We call it coming under the conviction of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit convinces us of what is right and what is wrong and where our life may be out of step with that. So the first step in revival, the first R, is to remember. But then secondly... There must be repentance. Notice again, Revelation 2, verse number 5. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and, what's that next word? Repent. Repent. Repentance is simply changing your mind. 
And it's a change of mind that will result in a change of direction. Repentance is not a work, it's a choice. It's a choice to say, I'm not going to think this way anymore. I used to think my sin was okay. I'm not going to think my sin is okay anymore. I used to think that I didn't need God. I'm not going to think that way anymore. I'm going to trust Him. It is a change of mind. And that change of mind will result in a change of direction. Now, like the doctrine of revival, as we're discussing today, there are some people who don't believe that repentance is necessary. For the life of me, I don't understand that. Because when I read the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, He said on two different occasions to a group of people, unless ye also repent, unless ye repent, then ye shall likewise perish. Jesus preached the doctrine of repentance. The apostles preached the doctrine of repentance. Repent, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. They preached the doctrine of repentance. And, but then there are some people who say, well, repentance is only necessary for the unsaved. They must repent of their sins in order to be saved, but once you've done that, you don't need to repent anymore. That a Christian should never repent. That is not biblical. I want to show you. I mentioned to you at the beginning here that of these seven churches, five of them needed correction. I want you to notice what Jesus said to each of these five churches. All right, first of all, look here in verse number five. We read again, Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. All right, skip down to verse 21. Excuse me, uh, verse 16 of this chapter. Jesus is speaking to the church at Pergamos, according to verse 12, and He says in verse 16, Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. The church at Thyatira, look at verse 21. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. Go on to chapter 3. And notice verse number 3. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent, he says. Now look down at verse number 19 of Revelation chapter 3. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous therefore and repent. All five churches that Jesus had to correct, he told them, you need to repent. You need to repent. You need to change your mind. And that will result in a change of direction. You need to repent. Now some people may get smart and may try to make the argument, well, that's speaking to the church as a whole, not to the individual believer. Well, Mr. Bible scholar, who has too many letters after his name, how is a church as a whole going to repent if the individuals who make up the church don't repent? How does that happen? It's one thing to say the church repented, but how did that happen? It only happens if the individuals who make up that church, if individual believers repent of their sin. Turn with me to the book of uh, 2 Corinthians, chapter number 7. Repentance, when we have sinned against God, is necessary for us to be restored to a right 
relationship, right fellowship with God. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Look with me at verse number 9. Paul writing to this group of believers that was the church at Corinth. He said, Now I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to... What's that word? Repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. This is an important point of distinction when it comes to revival. There are a lot of people who will respond emotionally to a sermon that is preached. And, you know, oftentimes revivals are led by um, itinerant preachers and, and most of them are very, very talented public speakers. And they can tell gripping stories. And some of them, unfortunately, use that to try and elicit an emotional response. Because in their mind, that is the mark of revival is when people get emotional enough. And a lot of times when we sit in that kind of a meeting, we we may get emotional. And we may even get emotional about our sin. So that we could really say, I'm sorry. I am sorrowing over my sin. But if that sorrow, which there's nothing wrong with it per se, But if it does not lead to repentance, then it's not godly sorrow. It's just an emotional show. That is such an important distinction. I believe people ought to be brokenhearted over their sin. But it's not enough just to shed a tear or to weep and wail a little bit if it doesn't result in repentance it doesn't result in a changed mind and a changed direction of life. Paul here was glad when he heard that the Corinthian believers responded to the correction of his first letter with godly sorrow that led them to repentance. And we're going to see in just a minute what that repentance looked like. He was very glad of that because repentance is necessary in order for us to be restored to a right relationship with God. So step number one, remember. Number two, repent. Stop thinking the way that you're thinking about your sin and start thinking in line with what God says. But then there's a third step to real revival, the third R, and that is to redo. To redo. Back in our text, Revelation 2.5, you don't have to turn there. You can stay here because we're coming back to 2 Corinthians 7. But God said to the church, repent and do the first works. You need to repent of what you're doing. Not because you were doing all the wrong things, but because you were doing things for the wrong reason. And you need to go back and you need to do the first works. Get back to the basics of doing what is right for the right reason. So that's why I call this redoing. It is getting back to that place of full obedience, not only in action, but in attitude. And our motives being right. Everything about us being right with God. Some might call this recommitment. Some might call it rededication. 
But the idea is the same. It's we make a choice. We've remembered what we've forgotten or what we used to do and aren't doing. We've repented of that. And now we're going to start doing the right things again. It's that simple. What were the things that he was talking about? Notice how he says, the first works. The first works. What he's referring to there are the basics, the baby steps of the Christian life. And he's taking us back, the Holy Spirit is taking us back all the way to that day that you and I trusted Christ as our Savior. Can you remember that day? I hope so. I hope you have a clear memory of the time that you made the decision to trust the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you do not have a clear memory of that, then you need to ask yourself some questions. Like, how do I know that I'm saved if I don't remember trusting Christ as my Savior? I think if you're going to make a decision that will last for all of eternity, that you ought to at least remember making that decision. Now, I know some preachers take it too far. And they will walk people, whole crowds of people through a list of all of these different items. Can you remember the time of day? Can you remember the location that you were at? Can you remember what clothes you were wearing? Can you remember what you had for breakfast? Can you remember? I mean, it's like, (laughs) really? I I, got to remember all of that to be saved? Look, salvation is not dependent on you remembering that you, what, uh, it's not dependent on your memory. But I am saying this, that if you can't remember it, you need to ask some hard questions and find out, if I'm really saved, why don't I remember trusting Christ as my Savior? It could be, my friend, that you've never actually done that. It it could be that you just adopted the religion that you inherited and assumed that you were always a Christian when there's never been a point in your life where you made the decision to trust Christ. And what the Holy Spirit is doing here is He's taking us back to that time where we made the decision to trust Christ. And at that point in time, we were born again and all of a sudden we had brand new desires. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away and behold, all things are become new. And there are certain desires that are common amongst all baby Christians, new believers. All newborn Christians have some common desires. Just like a baby, when it's minutes old, that little boy, that little girl, immediately begins to crave sustenance. They want their mother's milk. So it is that a a new believer immediately has certain hungers. Among those hungers are these things. First of all, there's a hunger for the Word of God. It's the sincere milk of the Word that we grow thereby. And a new Christian almost... Every time, immediately, they want to know more about God. And they know because somebody showed them the gospel from the Bible that they can find out more about Him there. They want to get in the Word of God. Another common desire of a newborn Christian is to tell other people about Jesus. Oh, that is such a blessing to me when I have seen people get saved. One of the first things they want to do is they want to go out and tell somebody else. They want to go tell their friends and their families and their co-workers and their neighbors and anybody that will listen, hey, let me tell you what happened to me. You know what else a, a new Christian often desires? They want to pray. They want to talk to God. They want to praise Him and say, Lord, thank You for saving me. 
You know what else they desire? Oftentimes, they want to be around other Christians. They, they, they realize, hey, I'm, I need to be encouraged and I want to get around people who, who, who've also trusted Christ as my Savior. And these are some very basic desires. These are some very basic first works that you and I who have been saved for a number of years often forget how important they are. Those are the, the basic nutrients of our Christian health and our Christian life. We need those things. Notice these are small things that every Christian can and should do. Revival does not mean that you all of a sudden become a spiritual giant and you're going to go out and you're going to conquer all the world for Jesus. Now, praise the Lord if you have the desire in your heart to do that, but it doesn't mean that unless you move to a third world country and win thousands of people to Christ, well, then you didn't experience real revival. No, real revival is often just getting back to the basics. Redo the first works. And in this context here, there's a, there's a specific application because what was the sin of the church at Ephesus? They had labored without love. And the specific first work that they needed to get back to was loving God. Not just laboring for Him, but loving Him. Saying, Lord, I'm not doing this for myself. I'm not doing this for the praise of others. I'm not doing this to somehow earn your favor. I'm not doing this for any of those reasons. I'm doing this because I love you. Redo the first works. That return to to a place of full obedience. Where oftentimes it's just doing the basics. Reading our Bible, praying, going to church, telling others about Jesus, loving God, loving our neighbor. Now, I want you to notice here, let's go back to Revelation chapter 2. Because there's, a, there's also a warning contained in this verse. Revelation chapter 2 and verse number 5. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else... Or else, or else I will come quickly, the Lord says, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. This isn't a fourth R of revival. This is the one R of warning here. God says, if you don't repent, I will remove thy candlestick. Now, what does that mean? What is he talking about? removing the candlestick. Well, we'll go back to chapter 1, and we're not going to do it for sake of time, but we, we realize that these candlesticks represent the churches. What is the job of a candlestick? Anybody know? To hold a candle. All right? And what does a candle do? Gives light. All right? So the candlestick represents the church that holds up the light of the gospel. Okay? And what God is saying here to this church is if you don't remember, if you don't repent, and you won't redo, then I'm going to have to remove your candlestick. In other words, I am going to take my hand of blessing off of you, and you may continue to gather, you may continue to exist in name, but you are no longer going to be a church that I am using and that I am blessing to hold forth the gospel light. 
This is not just a threat from the Lord. This is a warning of the consequences of refusing to respond to the Holy Spirit's working and refusing to heed the Word of God. A church cannot leave Scripture and walk away from God and expect God to bless. God says, I'm going to have to remove your candlestick. You know, as a pastor, one of the things that frightens me is the idea that I could be leading a church that is going through all of the motions, maybe has everything, you know, looking right on the outside, but God's hand of blessing has been removed. And all we're doing is hosting a religious country club every week. And to to be a kind of church that God has removed our candlestick. I don't want to be that kind of church. And I don't want to be that kind of Christian who's just going through all the motions and checking all the boxes and making sure that I maintain appearances. But God's hand of blessing isn't on my life because I haven't responded to the conviction of the Holy Spirit with repentance and renewal, redoing the things that I ought to do that I've just been going through the motions, that I've just been been putting on a face, that I've just been pretending. I don't want to be that kind of Christian. I want to be the kind of Christian, and I want our church to be the kind of church that God's hand of blessing is evident in us. God says, or else. For our church to cease to be a light, to have our influence removed and to become just a hollow shell of religiousness would be devastating. You see, revival maybe accompanied with large crowds. It might result in some very emotional experiences. It could go on for days and days and days, even if it's not planned. But that's not what revival is. Revival is when you and I remember, repent, and redo the things we know that God wants us to do.